0: We're looking at soldiers of the cross in 2 Timothy, uh, chapter 3, and any reading of the New Testament, especially Paul's epistles in the last days of his ministry as he's facing martyrdom, as he has endured persecution, would tell us that Christianity is not a pie-in-the-sky, by-and-by kind of faith, that we are in a battle. And Paul writes about the reality of these troubles that Timothy is going to face, and the truth is, he's really speaking to us, and he's speaking to the 21st century world. Uh, it's a picture of our current climate and the environment in which we find ourselves, where Christians are being pushed to the edges. Everybody has a right to have a voice in our society except a Christian. Now, that was not the case when I was growing up. Christians always had the voice. Now you can have events, you know, used to. Pardon me for having a flashback here. Used to, you couldn't have an event in a community without inviting a preacher to come and pray. Now, they try to figure out how to keep a preacher from coming and praying. Uh, Just a little thought, Daniel and I shared with somebody, uh, well, anyway, we shared with somebody today that uh, he and I are waiting on a phone call from the city fathers to have a little summit about how two churches can do something that our city can't figure out and uh... the person said well who needs to make that decision and daniel said we're waiting on the city fathers and we'd be glad to come to a meeting and talk about what you need to do to make this city a better city if you just seek the council of some pastors about how to make it a better city so i'm waiting on the phone call i'm not expecting it to ring tomorrow but um, sooner or later, if you get desperate enough, you will even reach out to a preacher. Amen. <laughs> Just a thought. Second Timothy three one, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now I've heard for years that passage preached and, and it's preached as if it's something in the future and that there's going to be a day when these things are going to happen way out there in the future. And so Paul is writing to Timothy and saying, there's going to come a day, Timothy, when all these things are going to come to pass. But that's not what Paul is saying. The last days in the New Testament began with the ascension of Jesus. So since the day that Christ ascended, we have been in the last days for 2,000 years. And you say, well, that's a lot of last days, not in the eyes of God. It's not, you know, a day is nothing to him. He's not limited by time and space. And so the last days began in the time of Timothy. He wasn't talking about the future as much as he was saying, now that we're here, this is what's going to happen. These are the results, the evidences that we are in the last days. And so he's not talking about future, some distant day he's talking about now. Chapter 3, there are three keys that must be remembered. Verses 1 through 9, he tells us you need to know what's going on. Don't bury your head in the sand. Now, you don't have to be obsessed with the news. I know some people that keep the news on all day or they keep the business channel on all day and they watch their stocks 24 hours a day doing this, mostly doing this. Or you watch the news and you see all this news, you know, things we never heard before. You know, I didn't know if something happened in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Now it's reported on our local news and and you hear everything and you're bombarded with it and you get depressed by it. You don't need to just close your eyes and pretend none of that's going on. You don't need to bury your head in the sand. You and I need to know what's happening in the culture. My New Testament professor in college told me this. He said, Michael, if you want to be relevant to the culture, have your Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. You need to know how to apply the headlines to Scripture and Scripture to the headlines. You see, if you don't know, how can you speak to it? Well, I just don't like to hear bad news. I don't want to know bad news. I don't want to know statistics. I don't, know about, I don't want to know all about all that stuff's going on in the world. I'm not saying be obsessed with it. I'm saying know enough about it that you can speak to it from a biblical perspective. You need to know what's going on. Secondly, in verses 10 through 13, you need to know how crucial it is to live a godly life. You need to know how crucial it is to live a godly life in this climate. Why? Because the gospel is at stake. And the witness of the gospel and the reliability and the truthfulness of the gospel is all at stake in how we live in these times. So we need to live a godly life. It's, it's not optional, and it's not compartmentalized. Thirdly, verses 14 through 17, you need to know how to use the scriptures and align your life to them. And so as Paul moves through these first nine verses of chapter 3, he gives us three ways and three evidences of how the enemy works. First of all, is deplorable conditions. Deplorable conditions. We are not ignorant of these difficult times. The word there means hard or stressful. It it, it can be translated this way. Times that are hard to deal with or times that are hard to bear. Times that are overwhelming to us. These stressful, perilous times In the classic Greek, this was used of an attack of a wild beast or of a raging sea that could sink a ship. And so Paul is painting a picture of turmoil and and a tempest and things just in an uproar. And he says, we're not ignorant of these things. In fact, the only other usage of this word is found in Matthew chapter 8, referring to the demoniac. And it says, it was so fierce that no one could pass this way. Now, the word times, obviously, in your English translation, is plural, which means it's multiple. There are seasons when it will be more than others. There are times when it seems to calm down and times of revival and awakening, in times when it seems like God calms the seas and the storms of life for a little while, but they're going to come back. And we are right now living in a tumultuous time. He says they will come, not they might come, but they will come. And when they come, they affect everything. They affect marriages, they affect families. It's turmoil in the economy and in the environment, there's persecution of believers, there's moral and social depravity that makes Sodom and Gomorrah look like a kindergarten. And then on top of that, you get philosophies of this world, Marxism and socialism and humanism, which deny the need or the existence of God. And you remove God from the public discourse and there's confusion about absolutes. And the the thing that we have to remember this, this is just not happening in America. It's on every hand and it's in every land. In every land, that's why we have missionaries overseas, there's turmoil. There's an uproar. There are difficult times. To top it all off, instead of addressing it as Paul told Timothy to address it, the church is in hiding. The church is in decay, and the church is aging and dying. Why? Because we will not do what we have to do to reach the next generation. Now, that sounds like I just inserted that into the text, but that is a reality. Our churches are aging and dying. The average age of attendees at the Billy Graham Training Center is a 62-year-old Caucasian woman. You're not gonna teach people the Bible if you can't get a younger group there. I mean, that's just the fact of the matter. We don't do refresh just to get pastors my age. I wanna get guys that are in their 20s and 30s there to try to help them in their journey and in their ministry so we pass on something to the next generation. He says these times are going to come and here's the church and what's the church caught up in? Sometimes it's caught up in entertainment trying to make people happy, trying to make people feel good about themselves. And it waters down the gospel and it waters down the truth and and there's a falling away and the reason why the church is not impacting the culture is because we are so comfortable with the culture. (laughs) Amen? Amen? I mean we're comfortable with the culture. So why does Paul say, realize this? I mean, isn't it obvious? He's already said, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel. He's already told him to endure suffering as a soldier of the cross. He's already warned him about the battles with false teachers. Why does he urge him now to know that these difficult days will come? He wanted him to know this is not going away. He's saying to timid Timothy. Hey son, don't hide in the tall grass and think, if I just stay low and keep my mouth shut, all of this turmoil and persecution will blow away, and we can get back to having a nice church and dinner on the grounds. He's saying, Timothy, it's going to get worse, and it's always going to be this way, and if you are living the gospel, you're going to live in deplorable conditions. Secondly, deplorable conduct. Verse 2, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, and unholy. Now Paul uses this phileo, brotherly love, four times at the beginning and at the end of this list. It's a word that emphasizes that they have friendship with or affection for persons, things, or attitudes. They have this, this, there are four Greek compound words here that kind of leap off the pages, so let's look at them. First of all, there's lovers of self. Now, what's the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's nothing in there about loving yourself except that you love God first, then your neighbor They are lovers of self. Here's what happens to us. Because our values turn inward, we love ourselves. And because they are outward, we love possessions and things and our attitudes that are not always of God. So he says, beware, there are going to be people that are lovers of self. Secondly, lovers of money. The only other time that phrase is used in the New Testament is Luke 16, 14, and it refers to the Pharisees. What Paul is trying to help him to understand, because that's what follows lovers of self, is this is always a heart issue. Now remember, we we talked about this morning, Jesus said more about money than anything else. And you know what? He never had a building program. None of his staff were paid. So he wasn't raising money to build buildings or or to, to hire staff. What he, the reason Jesus talked about money is very simple. He knew it's a heart issue. Money is not a material issue. It's a heart issue. And Jesus was not out there saying, you know, me and the boys that got to go from Galilee over to Samaria. We could use some bus money. If y'all could help us out a little bit. Maybe we could print up some tracks and hand them out. To those Samaritans, you know, those pagans over there, those half-breeds over there, you could, you could help us take the gospel to the Samaritans with $10 a gift and seed faith money. You could, you could bless my ministry. No, he didn't do that. Jesus talked about money because he knows that by nature we are greedy and we hoard and we want for ourselves. And so he talked about a heart issue. Money's not the problem. The heart's the problem. Look at First Timothy. Turn back a couple of pages to 1 Timothy 6 and verse 9. First Timothy 6 and verse 9. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires will plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, he does not say, I've heard this misquoted a thousand times, he doesn't say money is the root of all evil. He says the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, verse 4. Now, God is not against pleasure. I hope you understand that. In fact, if you look at the life of Jesus, there are times in the life of Jesus when He used great humor, and in fact, He used sarcasm And some of the greatest, most in-depth preachers I've ever met have some of the funniest senses of humor. Let me just—I'll just give you one. We're up at the IMB refresh, and we we go out to eat, and uh, was it Tuesday, Tuesday night? And on that Tuesday night, it was Mark and Katie's anniversary, so they've gone to another restaurant. So we go to eat. And Tom says to Jeannie, get the car and pick us over the, up over there by the Dillard's. And so Tom and, I, Tom and Ken and I walk halfway around the, because we need the exercise. We ate at Cheesecake Factory. And so we need the exercise. Hey, I'm into exercise, especially after cheesecake. And so we walk around and we practice singing as we're walking through this mall, happy anniversary to you, happy And we walk into the restaurant. We walk up to the person and we say, we need to see this couple, we're hired singers. And so we walk over and we stand at the table and we sing happy anniversary to them and we turn around and we just walked out. And the people at the bar turned around and thought we were out of our mind. And Mark just buried his head on the table. I think I heard him say something like, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's not that God doesn't want us to have pleasure and want us to have fun. I mean, He gave us the ability for athletics and for entertainment. It's that we should not love those things over Him. We should be able to lay them down. Loving pleasure is ultimately idolatry because it says, I love sports, I love my my talent, my abilities, my hobbies, my games more than I love God. Played an interesting golf course this week, Sage Valley, which is in Augusta. It was my fifth time to play golf this year. It was really good. We had four caddies. There were four of us playing. We had four caddies. And uh, at the first hole, there's a chapel. The man who built Sage Valley built it because he wasn't allowed into the Augusta National. And on the back of the scorecard, it says, everybody ought to have a chance once in life to get even. So he built his own golf course. And it is impressive. It's unbelievable. I mean it is as close to the Augusta National as you can possibly get. I mean it even smells like it. I had a caddy who had been at Augusta National for 20 years, had been there for 10 years and so. We're going and they pick us up in a cart and they take us to the first hole and off the first hole is a chapel. Because the man that owns that golf course, his dad was a preacher. And inside that chapel, you can put about 20 people, and all across the front of that chapel is a display of his father's preaching Bible, the ring that he wore, a song that he wrote that was published, sermon notes, newspaper devotionals that he had written. And when you go to play that golf course, they take you before you go to the first tee. You don't get a choice. They take you before you go to the first tee, and you say, this is the chapel that I built to honor my father on this golf course is just a reminder before you ever hit the first ball on a tee on a course that you have to be invited to play that something was bigger to me than even building this golf course. And that was my dad. Lovers of pleasure. Well, there's one more. Rather than lovers of God. In these verses, Paul begins to list... It's lovers of self, money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, what he's given us are 19 expressions of wickedness. These are not just a list of random thoughts. These are listed as expressions of wickedness that occur in difficult times, in perilous times, and they're defined, and they fall in between two phrases, lovers of self rather than lovers of God. And these are the core problems of loving the wrong things. Everything on this list is evidence of not loving God the way we're supposed to. That's all it is. 19 descriptive terms. Now, we've gone through this passage before a few years ago, and so I'm not going to go through the, what each word means, but I, I want to break it down for you. The first three expand on the issue of lovers of self, of self-love. And so when you look at these 19 things that are down here between this lovers of self and lovers of money, these descriptive terms, arrogant, revilers, boastful, Uh, revilers is really the word for blasphemy. It's an expansion of lovers of self. And these characterize all the problems that we find in our society today, all the issues that tear up homes and families and lives, all the reasons that people end up in prison and in gangs and why there are dysfunctional families are all listed right here. Something in this list covers every issue that we face in life. So the first three expand on the issue of self-love, but the next five refer to family life. They refer to family life and particularly the attitudes of kids toward parents. Now why would kids have this attitude toward their parents? Because their parents are lovers of self and lovers of money rather than lovers of God. That's a key reason behind this. And so in the Greek, all of these terms are in the negative form, and there's a prefix, an ah prefix, like in our English, undisciplined or disrespectful. It's stressing the absence of the right qualities. And so Paul says there's an absence of good qualities in our kids related to their parents, but he starts with, Lovers of self. You see, it's hard for kids to be obedient to parents when all they see is parents being selfish and self-centered. We know they're supposed to be. But if we're not modeling what that looks like, then how can we expect just because I'm your dad is a pretty lame reason, quite honestly. You know, that'll get you an ice cream cone with a coupon. But that's not enough reason. Just because is not enough reason. Because it's a hypocrite who says, I know I'm not living this, but I expect you to live it. That's hypocrisy. Third thing, he says, is the remaining seven deal with the attitudes of pride. The attitudes of pride. All of these are consequences of loving self. These expressions in this passage are consequences of self-love and being caught up in ourselves. God's order is first, God's second, other's self, last. And the only way the gospel can lead us to the right life is to die to self. Amen. And then there's deplorable consequences. When these kind of attitudes are left unchecked, they begin to infiltrate the church. And it's not only true of the world, the perilous times in the world in which we live now... It's taking place inside the church, and it's reaping waves and repercussions inside the church that are damaging. Look at verse 5. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captive weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. And then he mentions the two that opposed Moses. Holding to a form of godliness. That word form means a semblance of or an appearance of godliness. They get in the church and they learn the language. They know the phrases. They know the words that they need to use to worm their way in. And they have a form of godliness, but they're as lost as a goose in a snowstorm. They're as lost as a ball in tall weeds. They're as dry as sawdust, and they're as empty as a bucket with a hole in the bottom. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Or as John says later on, they have a name to be alive, but are dead. And every day, you can find them on religious television. Amen. Give me money. Send me money for this bottle of anointing oil. Get my prayer cloth. Touch the television. Agree with me. I'm thinking about somebody right now that has a liver problem, and I declare that you're healed. And There's a Greek word for that hogwash because the chances are that guy's just making it up when a woman preacher can say she's a better preacher now that she's left her husband so that she can identify with people who have been through divorce that's a huckster I don't care if she is pretty she's a religious huckster When somebody can own three jets and stay in the presidential suite everywhere they go telling you that they need your money and they're feeding off of widows and lonely people who sit at home and watch them on TV for encouragement to send them $5 and $10 and $20 a month to help them continue to fly their jets around the country, that's a huckster. Now, you may not like the fact that I said it. You'll find out when you get to heaven you were wrong and I was right. I I don't think, well, I know. Jesus had to go get money out of the mouth of a fish to pay his taxes. We got a lot of hucksters that are playing on widows and naive and innocent people today and taking their money. And they have a form of godliness, they know the words, they know the language. They know how to get a choir to sing and they know how to get people to say amen and they can make people fall down and they can lay hands on folks and they can claim to be healers and they can claim to be a lot of other things, but they're hucksters. The airwaves are full of Elmer gantries and people using and abusing the church because they're too sorry to get a real job. I'll never forget one of the most prominent people in America back in the eighties. I was helping him load his car one day and I mean this guy had spoken all over the world. And he said to me, Michael, I'm praying for the end of religious television. And I said, why? He said, because one hour of good theology cannot fix 23 hours of bad theology. And he said, for one Charles Stanley, you're going to have 23 others that have just got sorry theology, and it's killing the church. Because we don't know what to believe because we're not discerning of the times in which we live. I know that's not easy to say. You see why I know it's not easy to say because I said almost the same thing in 1990 and I got resounding amens and even in a Sunday night crowd I've get stares and looks at me like you sure are not being very nice. You know why? Because you've listened to it so long you're dull to the difference between truth and error and somebody playing for your sympathy and your money and somebody that will tell you the truth even if you don't like it. That's what can even happen to a church like this one. It can happen to us. Beware in the last days. Perilous times. Not might come. They will come. And so these are marked by three things and then we're through. Distorted behavior. Smart marked by distorted behavior, distorted thinking. And let me just stop there for a second. Are you in the Word enough to know the difference between somebody giving you a self-help, self-esteem sermon and somebody telling you that you're a sinner in need of a Savior? Distorted thinking, distorted thinking says, I can be better, I can do better, I am better, I am me. (laughs) Right thinking says, except for the grace of God, I'm lost. And in my flesh dwells no good thing. So let me just get real personal. In my flesh, me, right here, dwells no good thing. Thing. nothing in me is good because left to myself and my depravity I would be a huckster but the grace of God reminds me that I deserve hell but I got heaven because of grace not because Michael Capp was better than somebody else but it was all the result of the grace of God it's distorted behavior, it's distorted thinking, and it's distorted religion. Folks, we live in perilous times. And the stronger you stand on what this book says, the more people are going to think you are out of your mind. But I want to say to you with everything that a shepherd can say to sheep, Don't let the wolves devour you. These are perilous times. Don't be surprised by them. Don't be a coward in the middle of them. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because this book is the only hope that we've got, is what God says in this book. And there are no surprises. God's told us everything that's coming. So we shouldn't be shocked. We shouldn't be surprised. We should get up as good soldiers every day and say, Lord, I'm ready. Whatever the battle, I'm prepared. Let's pray together. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. and I want you to just take a moment tonight. First of all, to pray for yourself. And then to pray for the person on your left and the person on your right. Because any of us can be deceived, any of us can get sidetracked, any of us can begin to believe a half-truth that leads us to a whole lie. And so tonight, I just want to ask you, with, in your seat... Just pray, God, give me the grace and the wisdom and the boldness to stand for truth. Not to be mean about it, but to be bold about it. So that when the time comes and I'm challenged in my faith, I don't almost say something, but I have the courage to say what I need to say.